0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, with the New Books Network and the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Oren Harmon about his book, Evolutions, 15 Myths That Explain Our World. Professor Harmon is the chair of the Program in Science, Technology, and Society at Bar-Ilan University and a senior research fellow at the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute, where he hosts the Science and Creativity Research Group. Professor Harmon's earlier book, The Price of Altruism, won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and was a New York Times Book of the Year. Oren Harmon, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me, hello.
0: Oren, let's begin by finding out a little more about you.
1: Well, um, I was born in Jerusalem about 46 years ago. Uh, to an American mother from New York City and Israeli father from Jerusalem. And I grew up in Jerusalem and for part of the time in New York City, uh, where I went to a high school called the Collegiate School for Boys, which is a wonderful high school that the Dutch settlers um, established in 1628. So it's one of the oldest educational establishments in the United States. And uh, a wonderful place to, to grow, and um, and then returned to Israel to complete my high school, and um, went to the army, and and then uh, jumped into the university. I was uh, I read very few books as a kid. I was I was kind of very active, you know, uh, soccer and uh, soccer playing, and and uh, love butterflies. I had a butterfly collection, and most of the time, you could find me out in the in the field uh, trying to catch a butterfly. Um, and my mother always told me that when I finally reach the university, um, I'll fall in love with books. And she was right. <laughs> and ideas—that's uh, what happened. Um, I-
0: well, I can I can see your early butterfly chasing reflected in the delight in evolutions. It's really a, a very unique pleasure to read. It's a literary history of the universe backed up by extensive bibliography as data. So how did you come to the notion of presenting evolutionary science as myth?
1: Well, um, when I was about seven years old, my mother bought me this book called The World of Myth and Legend from Brimax Books. And, um, and I remember opening the book, which was beautifully illustrated, and really being sort of struck by a kind of sense of awe at these amazing mythological stories about, you know, the Green Knight and the Knights of the of the of the round table of King Arthur and about the uh, the Minotaur which was half man, half bull, and about Icarus who did not heed his father's warnings and flew too close to the sun. Um and I remember sort of the glimmers of a uh, the first glimmers of a kind of tragic understanding of the human condition, but also um of of the great opportunity in life. Um And then some years later, um, at the collegiate school, actually, for boys, I had a wonderful biology teacher by the name of Miss Abdel, who brought a compound microscope to school one day. And um, I remember peering down the ocular and looking at what Miss Abdel told us were called mitochondria, which were these tiny organelles within the cell that Miss Abdel told us um, produced almost all of the energy for all of the cell, for, for us, for humans. And I just remember, I I couldn't believe it. I was struck by this sense of awe. How could it be that these tiny little organelles that you can't even see, you know, with the naked eye can be producing all of this energy? Um, And then, you know, from my environment, I gradually understood that there's one thing called myth and there's one thing called science. And that these are, in fact, very different, almost antagonistic things that myth um, uh, appeals to humankind's fears and hopes by way of fable, uh, and that it power its power resides um, in its psychological depth and in the colorfulness of of the storytelling and in the feeling that it's able to exude. Um, and on the other hand, science is a rational, objective observation and description. Uh, of the universe and, uh, and of ourselves and its power resides in its method uh, and its precision and exactitude. And in fact, um, you know, that science, modern science had come, come around in the 16th century precisely in order to produce a new kind of knowledge based on a new kind of method, um, uh, a knowledge that did not pertain in either mysticism or in religion. So in fact, modern science had fashioned itself from the get-go as a kind of replacement for the age-old stories of pre-modern peoples. Um, And to me, you know, I I felt torn by this realization um, because the awe that I felt looking at the physical and natural world and the awe that I felt reading these myths and, you know, becoming uh, engrossed in them felt like the same awe, it felt like they was coming from the same place um, in some kind of inchoate manner. And so, um, so ultimately, uh, you know, I, I found it very difficult um, in my personal life to, you know, to sort of like decide, am I going to go in the direction of science? Or am I going to go in a more uh, sort of humanistic direction? And I never really chose. And in in a way, evolution is an attempt to sort of bring these two worlds together, to bring the color and the psychological depth and the feeling of the world of mythology to the to the to the precision of the world um, of the world of science and the way that I decided to do that was um, to really use our most cutting edge scientific understandings today in the twenty first century in astrophysics and geochemistry and biochemistry and genetics. Um, and uh, and and cognitive sciences and linguistics and evolutionary theory to bring that knowledge to the age old themes of world mythologies, the preoccupation with uh, with questions that have always preoccupied us as humans, such as where do we come from, where are we going um, what is creation, what is life, what is death and immortality, and also then you know what are um, uh, what is, what is motherhood, what is memory, what is jealousy, what is truth and what is hope? Um, so I begin with the the great bang, uh, the great big bang. Um, and I go from there to the creation of the solar system, um, to the birth of the moon, um, and the earth moon system. And then once life evolves on earth, from, um, from a single single celled or molecular self-replicating entity to the great inventions um, of multicellularity and sex and vision and flight and consciousness and language. Um, and in so doing, I try to basically to bring our modern language to bear on the age-old themes. Uh, and by and, and 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 by doing so, try to perhaps understand these themes um, slightly differently.
0: Well, I know that as a reader, I I could feel myself persuaded to approach the narrative with uh, with belief, with the mindset with which we approach stories and resist my skeptical mind of knowledge, the way we approach facts. So it, it, what you were trying to do really worked, at least with this reader.
1: <laughs> I'm very, I'm very <laughs> glad for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's
1: kind of an interesting relationship, right? Because on the one hand, all peoples have always used myths to approach their existential conundrums. right? Where do we come from? Where are we going? You know, what is truth? What is hope? And these are all very difficult questions. Uh, They don't necessarily have easy answers. They may not even have answers at all. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, science came along uh, professing to provide answers um, to the kinds of questions that do have solutions. Again, uh, it was going to do that uh, with the help of a a new kind of method, which became known as, as the scientific method in which... Ideas could be um, floated and then they could be refuted. And if they, if they are not able to be refuted, if they're not the kinds of knowledge that's able to be refuted, then they're, then they're, they're perceived as non-scientific or, or, or not scientific. Um, so again, on the face of things, science was going to be a kind of replacement um, for mythology. But then if you look more closely at science, um, and in particular here, the history of science is, is, is our friend um, in such an endeavor, then you see that science is performed, is, is, is produced by human beings with all of their foibles and their moors and their agenda, whether uh, hidden uh, or otherwise, whether conscious or otherwise. Um, these human beings usually work in institutions with their own politics, uh, their own foibles. Uh, the, the institutions themselves are embedded in the larger culture, which with its moors. Um, and of course, invariably, scientists use our human language uh, and therefore employ metaphors, uh, which tend to be very sensitive to the times. So I'll give you an example. Um, in the 16th century, People spoke of the brain, people interested in understanding the human brain. They spoke of it as a hydraulic system encased in miniature in, within our skulls. Then in the 17th century, the brain suddenly became a very complex mechanical clock. Uh, jumped to the 19th century, and the brain is now suddenly a telegraph switchboard. Into the 20th century, it becomes a neural network. And some people speak of it today um, as a quantum computer. Now, each one of these entities is, in fact, a different entity, um, a different brain, of which we can ask different questions and therefore receive different answers. So it's really quite striking. I I remember the moment it happened to me um, um, when I suddenly realized that, you know, for a thousand years, the smartest people on, on the planet looking into the heavens were certain that there had to be epicycles to regularize the motions of the heavenly bodies. And they, and, and, and they were sure that there had to be an ether to carry the waves of light. Um, Aristotle was sure that females have less teeth in their mouths than males and that the, their blood is not as warm. Um, and you know, from our modern perspective, these notions seem preposterous, they seem ridiculous. We want to scream at Aristotle from the, from the distance of 2,500 years, you know, Aristotle, the, you're the great Aristotle. Why didn't you just, you know, ask your wife to open her mouth and, and, and count the number of, te- of teeth and see that, in fact, the exact same number that you yourself have in your own mouth. Um, and so we tended to, to view these notions as mistakes, and yet um, it would be too facile for us to think of them um, as mistakes. And the reason for that is because these ideas were deeply tied to their times, deeply embedded within the cultures that produced them. So the reason why Aristotle got the number of teeth in, in, in women's mouth wrong wasn't because Aristotle didn't know how to count. He was actually a wonderful empiricist. He knew how to count very well, thank you. It had to do with the fact that the notion of what is female and what is male, what it what it, what is a woman and what is a man, were in fact very different um, to our sensibilities today in ancient Greece, where where he resided, and the epicycles were were deeply tied to Christian notions of harmony and perfection um, within the world that produced them, and so, in a sense. Um, in this book, I'm trying to, as I said, to sort of bring some of the psychological profundity and color and feeling of the of the world of myth to the world of science with its precision and its method. Um, but on a on a more philosophical, on a deeper kind of philosophical level, I'm also, you know, saying that we need to recognize that scientific facts and entities, things like you know, quarks and black holes and bacteria and prions, they don't exist out there in the world waiting to be discovered by humans. Rather, they are products of scientific inquiry. They're, 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 in a sense, they're networked. Um, and, they, and they rise or fall not based on the strength of their inherent veracity as things out there in the world, but rather on the strength of the institutions and the practices and the tools and, and indeed the rhetoric that produces them and makes them intelligible uh, to, the, to their audiences. So if those networks break down, the facts go with them. And that, that helps us understand why you know, epicycles existed in this world for a thousand years in the minds of the smartest people, and yet today we, we've disposed of them entirely. Um, you know, science in a very deep sense, science is a form of storytelling because a hypothesis is a story. A model, uh, is, is a story. It's never a direct description of reality, but rather a kind of way to tell a story about what we perceive to be reality. Of course, the storytelling of sciences differs from the storytelling's in fiction and in poetry and in art, um, and that's due, of course, to the constriction that the method creates—the scientific method—and also to the fact. To, it's down to the fact that the storytelling in science is a form of competitive storytelling. Again, of, of conjectures and of refutations of those conjectures. Um, so, in a way, there's a there's a, there's a deeper kind of philosophical. Um, undertone to this book, um, which has to do with the relationship between um, the different kinds of stories that we tell ourselves as human beings. Um, Each generation uses the language, each culture uses the language at its disposal to try to plumb the greatest depths of understanding, to understand who we are. Uh, in a very very basic sense, um, and for the Greeks, their language was the language of the gods of Olympus, um, and to a great extent, our language, ever since the 16th and 17th century, our very powerful language is the language of science, and so we use that language to tell stories, just as the Greeks used the 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 the, the language of the gods of Olympus to tell th- theirs. Um, uh, but we're both telling stories in some very fundamental sense.
0: In fact, uh, some people interpret the biblical creation narratives in the book of Genesis to be referencing evolution. Uh, well, did, it, yeah. did that influence you at all?
1: Uh, 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 of course. I'll, I'll give you an example. So one of the myths is about, um, it's called immortality, and it's it's really about the beginnings of life on planet Earth. Now, You know, there was a, 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 to cross the threshold from non living to living was a great problem, um, a great challenge. Um, For something to be considered uh, to be alive, it needs to be able to do two things, really. One is to self replicate, to replicate. And the other is to metabolize. Now, DNA can replicate itself, it can't metabolize. Proteins can metabolize, but they can't self replicate. And so that's the original uh, chicken and egg problem right there. That's the, th- that's the problem. Now, for about 40 years, we've had a theory, which is a theory among amongst other theories uh, produced by Wally Gilbert at Harvard, that at the beginnings of life, there was a, a kind of a cousin of DNA, a, a form of RNA, which was called a, um, a, a ribosome which was able to both self replicate and metabolize catabolize so it, it, in one in one living entity you had both functions and it was it started life going except just at the beginning of life there was a quote unquote dilemma if this you know this ribozyme was able to self replicate precisely extremely precisely in other words to create a perfect twin of itself what that would mean was that there was no variation for natural selection to work upon. And therefore, there would be no evolution of life on the planet. It would just be, be stuck right at the right at the get-go. On the other hand, if it self-replicated too sloppily, then life would not converge into anything. It would just be one big mess that natural selection would not be able to fashion into different species. And so you needed a certain level of, a certain rate of mutation. Mutations are basically mistakes in self-replication. What characterizes mutations is that you don't know what they will bring about. And so when you think of this philosophically, what that means is, is that for there to be a future of life on the planet, by definition, biologically, you couldn't know what that future would be. So the price of having a future is that you can't know it. And you mentioned the book of Genesis. We have that precise insight in the book of Genesis. Quite interesting, quite fascinatingly, because in in Genesis, you, you you know humankind either eats from the from the tree of knowledge or from the tree of life, but not from both. You can't eat from both. You can't eat from both. And in a way, that's reflected in the biology that we figured out. You know, uh, uh, so, so, so so far into the future, um, we can say that that principle of life being dependent on not knowing where it's going is really embedded in our biology.
0: well, that's that's a wonderful way of presenting it. and in fact, uh, one of the reviewers of your book, uh, suggested that you were creating a scripture of science. Uh, this is what this is what the reviewer wrote. Uh, his focus might be on myth, but what the final form his book fulfills is a text presenting science as religion. In fact, if a future or alien civilization came across Evolution's your book, they might indeed consider it to be a work of scripture. <laughs> what what do you say about that? It's high praise on the one hand, but was that what you were trying to accomplish? You know,
1: I, I did want to write a kind of timeless book, so I didn't want it to be, you know, as much as I could, I wanted it to be to be able to be read by future generations. But of course, we you know that that you know that's a that's a rarity. I'm I'm always reminded of that when I think of Edward Bellamy's work at the end of the nineteenth century. Um you know, great, a great, great bestseller. You know, everyone on the planet who read books knew who Edward Bellamy was. And you know, no one knows who Edward Bellamy is today. So I'm very much aware of you know our finit, you know our, our finitude, and, and of of the short memory of mankind. And so you know, it it would be pretentious to think that anyone uh, fifty years from now would read the book. But if 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 such a miracle happens, then you know, uh, not fifty years, but you know, five hundred years hence. Um in a way, yes, what I was trying to do was to write for my time about the great the great conundrums of humankind that are all a function of the fact that we're able to with our brains we're able to imagine infinity, imagine anything that we want, imagine an afterlife, um, imagine our own deaths. Um, um and, 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 and yet again, we are very much um, aware of our, 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 uh, our finitude and the fact that, that we will die. So that kind of complexity, which arises from the ability to imagine anything, but also to know that you will die, creates for us um, great mysteries about about meaning. And, uh, and we can only touch them with the language at our disposal, so again, you know, our language very much is is, is a scientific language. It's a very powerful ma- uh, language which is, allows us to understand ourselves uh, and understand our universe, uh, and it's a sign of our times. And so, uh, so I I take our language today, our current day language, which of course will evolve and will change, and things will, as we see them today, will be considered to be mistakes by. By our uh, our progeny, uh, the people who come after us, um, but um, never, nevertheless, it's the only language that we can use to try to plumb our mysteries. You know, um, sometimes I think about, you know, today we, we speak about the gene um, as controlling our our you know our characteristics, our behaviors, and you know, the gene for this and the gene for that. There's a lot of gene speak in our in our culture. Uh, the last few generations yes. um, and and I often wonder about whether or not the gene will actually exist um, in a hundred years or in 200 years sometimes I feel like I, I want to be like rip Van Winkle and just to, you know to fall asleep and to wake up whatever a hundred years hence and, and and to look at the world and see what's what's been retained and what has changed radically I actually have a inkling that genes will not exist because we'll be able to describe what we're interested in, in terms of our characteristics, at the cellular level and at other biological levels, without recourse to the notion of the gene. Now that you know, to, to many ears, that will sound counterintuitive because we think of genes as very real things, right? Like you could take a gene out of a out of a you know a strain of wheat and put it into a strain of tomato, and it'll help the tomato become hardier and it'll uh, or 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 more red and brighter, you know. Last longer on the shelf in the grocery store. So we think of we think of genes as very real things, and yet even the things that we consider to be extremely hard facts are, to some degree, um, a form of you know concept making of storytelling. And maybe we'll you know there will be another entity of you know all the uh, uh, the interactions between the the functional. Uh, the functional proteins in our cell, will give that thing a name. We'll call it, I don't know, lean, not gene, but lean. And that will be what will interest us, and the gene will sort of fall by the wayside. So, so yes, we we are now telling our story from our own time. Uh, We cannot but do that, just as we cannot but tell our story through the neurological apparatus that we've, we've inherited from evolution. Uh, you know the eyes that know how to look one way and not to look another um, and we can only speak through the language that we have you know with all of its opportunity but also all of its limitations um, uh, so um, so I you know <laughs> if someone reads evolution's hundreds of years from now and and, and finds it to be a kind of uh, religion of our day um you know that'll 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 tickle me fancy wherever I am in the in the stratosphere
0: so that's a a very important point that you make when you say that uh, science is a language more mythic than we care to admit, because what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is not just that we will know more as science progresses, and so what we think today will have to change to adjust to the new discoveries, but rather the very language that we use is struggling to convey some deeper truths that we are not aware of or we only have an inkling of. And those are the limitations of science and language. Is that that what you mean? It it is. And yet it's a very
1: sort of, you know, it's a very narrow bridge to walk upon because because we also live in a world um, a strange world, which people sort of refer to as a post-truth world. And I've always felt that that was kind of a funny way to speak of things because it, it assumed that there was once a truth world. Um, and I don't think that that ever existed. But but you, we know what we mean when we say a post-truth world. You know, we, we mean a world in which a kind of grotesque version of the critique of science now calls facts into question entirely, claiming that, 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 that facts aren't important, uh, and that we that we should doubt them because they're created by elites or by interested parties, um, and th- and therefore there's this kind of resurgence of the notion that non-rational forms of thought are just as legitimate uh, as rational forms of thought, and and and, um, and no one knows what to believe in anymore, and that's kind of dangerous. It's dangerous culturally. It's difficult. It sort of messes things up. People kind of lose their way. Um, and it's particularly dangerous because we also live it, it, at a time when, as a countermeasure, science prof- professes to provide solutions to almost all of our problems. Um, so I'll give an example. Um, have you ever heard of the of the new science of happiness? Of course. Of course, exactly, because it's it's become this cottage industry, you know, Wherever you go, a different expert—be you know, be it a psychologist or an economist or a, or or a geneticist—is explaining to us, um, you know, how how what we need to do to become happy. And it, it, and it seems sometimes that all we need to do is, you know, to find the the areas in the brain that are involved in happiness, and then to figure out the push button uh, molecules and, and hormones that uh, that will, you know. Um, Turn on these areas, and then we'll all be living in a sea of bliss. Um, now, of course, science and technology are amazing. You know, we live longer lives. We um, we have literally all of the knowledge, or much of the knowledge, produced by humanity um, at our fingertips. Literally, um, uh, at the end of you know, on our computers, uh, we're increasingly farming out backbreaking and mind-numbing labor to, to machines, um, all of that, uh, all of those things are wonderful, wonderful developments. But we are also increasingly confusing comfort with happiness. We're confusing information with wisdom. So in this book, I ask the question, are we really any happier than the cavemen who drew those haunting, beautiful images in caves such as Chauvet and Lascaux in France, what is called France today? Are we any happier than the ancient Greeks who spoke of a tempestuous Hera and a jealous Zeus? I, I don't have an answer to that. I do not know that we're any happier. I know that we're more comfortable. You know, we all have roofs above our heads, or many of us do, not all of us, obviously. Uh, Many of us eat better than we used to eat and don't have to worry about our next meal. Uh, We're definitely more comfortable. Are we happier? I don't know the answer to that question. Sometimes it seems to me that we're not happier, that we're more confused. Um, And so um, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do think that I know that we also understand intuitively that the question, what is a gene? or how is a star born, are not the same as asking a question like, what is the meaning of all of this? Uh, Is it good or bad, and why? I feel that we also know that we can't and should not try to reduce all facts to values. And also, I think that we feel that we know that there are important questions that don't necessarily have answers that science can, cannot touch with its method, but that those same self-questions count and that maybe they even count m- most of all. you know. And it was Wittgenstein who said that even after we've provided answers to all of the questions that we can posit, we will still not have scratched our deepest problems. And at this place, there will be no more questions. And that is precisely the answer. It was a very wise thing to say. We have this illusion that science has produced a method that is able to provide the answers to all the questions that matter. But in fact, it's very important to understand, to define the field within which the tools of science are extremely, extremely powerful and useful for answering the questions that are of interest to us. And outside of which, those same self-tools actually become quite blunt and irrelevant. I think that that's a great challenge of our day, precisely because of both the pretensions of science and the confusions of the, quote-unquote, post-truth reality.
0: Well well said. Uh, you, you say something related to that in the book uh, when you... Uh, stated that humans have become accustomed to believing they created technology. Instead, it was technology that created them. Right. That that's in
1: reference actually to the evolution of language. Um, because, you know, um, Noam Chomsky in the fifties, um, uh, offered a theory whereby, uh, language was sort of an inbuilt, um, kind of, uh, ability of the brain, sort of like, you know, that the brain was kind of like a Swiss army knife and, and language was one of the, one of the, one of the knives uh, that was inbuilt in us biologically, it was part of who we are. Um, but I think that, you know, more recent research uh, argues quite um, convincingly that we should look at language as a form of a social technology rather than an embedded part of a biology. Clearly our brain allows us to, allows us language. But it's, it's less clear that there's a particular, you know, that there was a particular adapt, a kind of a, a, a adaptive pressure on, on the human brain that once it was satisfied, we could suddenly be able to, to, to speak. No, we had a brain that among other things allowed us to invent the technology which we called language. Now, that technology was an extremely, extremely powerful technology because, of course, it allowed us to describe our perception of reality to one another. And so that was extremely adaptive in an evolutionary sense. So, you know, I could say to you, hey, look over there in the bushes. There's a a lion. We better get out of here, you know, a double time. Or I could say to you, you know, I actually saw a source of water about two kilometers from here, um, near, near the old tree in, in the gorge. Why don't we go over there and, and get us some water? And that was extremely valuable. Um, and of course, so language, language played a, a, a very important normative role too, because it's really quite fascinating. You know, there are these studies in monkeys that show that a, a troop of monkeys. Um, you know, if they're about 100 monkeys, 120 monkeys, 145 monkeys, then there's no need for punishment. They can get along with one another. Uh, they can somehow solve the problem of trust. But if you have 146 monkeys, suddenly if you don't have punishment at the, at the, at the social level, all hell breaks loose. So punishment was, is one form, one kind of technology that, that uh, primates and later hominins invented in order to be able to live in groups because we are a social man. Um And th- that's one, that's one technology. Another technology, again, a very powerful one is language. because you know I, I, we know each other, so I know that you're a nice person, you know that I'm okay, so we can cooperate. But you know once the group grows, there's suddenly a lot of people that we don't have direct contact with. So what is language allowed to do? Well, it allows to gossip. It allows to convey information about others. So I can say to you, I don't know David, but you know David. Is David okay? And you could say, oh, yeah, David's great. You know, and then I can interact with David and, and sort of you know, uh, uh, trust him. Um, so language allowed that. Um, and, and, and it was a technology that really we invented and then, you know, came back to invent us. Uh, as, you know, increasingly um, entangled social beings who are dependent on one another. What language did alongside that also was to give us almost for free the the half-truth, the fib, the exaggeration, you know, the lie, uh, and ultimately the myth, which are just, you know, sort of, you know, stories that are told in a, at a higher level uh, and believed by many people. Um, and that of course uh, defines us in, in, defines our humanity in very profound ways. And again, that returns to one of our, our own mythologies in, 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 in the Jewish tradition from the book of Genesis, uh, which is that humankind, Adam and Eve had to leave the garden of Eden because of the lie, because they lied. And so in a way, We were put on our path outside of the Garden of Eden, on our path towards our humanity, by the lie. So the lie defines us, in a way, more than the truth.
0: But of course, in this uh, post-truth era, or as uh, Stephen Colbert called it uh, famously, truthiness, uh, there's a blurry line between truth and lie, and language facilitates that blurring um and, and and it seems that you know
1: the blurring is part of our predicament um you know that the, the line between truth and and uh, and and lie sort of moves historically uh, on a continuum but the blurriness of that line is 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 something that uh, we walk with uh perennially
0: right exactly well, I'd like to give our listeners a sense of how you present these myths. If you'd be good enough to read something for us, uh, there there are a lot of choices. Why why don't you select what you would like to read?
1: Well, I'll 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 read to you a um, a few stanzas from a myth called Motherhood, which is about the birth of the moon. Um, and I'll just set it up a little bit. So, um, the, the moon, a lot of people don't know how the moon, you know, was created. Um, uh, and in fact, we've had a theory about that only for the last 40 or 50 years. So astonishingly, we put a man on the moon before we actually knew where the moon came from.
0: Um, <laughs> that's true. I, I never but, thought about it that way, but you're right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, And, uh, today we have something called the giant impact
1: theory, which says that about 4.53 billion years ago, a giant planetesimal about the size of Mars, which has been given the name Thea, um, hit the earth and really sort of, uh, tore a chunk of the earth out of it. And then due to gravity and to angular momentum, that chunk fell into orbit around earth. Um, and, um. And, uh, and if you were alive four and a half billion years ago and you looked up into the sky, um, then you all you would see was this giant orb uh, of, of moon because it was, to begin with, much closer to Earth than it is today. Uh, it was about 22,000 kilometers away from Earth, extremely close today. It's almost 400,000. What's fascinating about the relationship between the Earth and, and the moon is that the moon is actually... Moving away from us at the pace of the growth of fingernails—about you know four centimeters a year—and that has to do with the dynamics of of, of the tides. Um, so I turn this, you know, this story, which is you know known to us due to modern astrophysics in the last generation or two, uh, into a kind of disquisition about uh, the meaning of motherhood. Uh, so I'll read to you uh, some of this myth. This is the, uh, the earth speaking to, um, to, to the moon. I speak to you candidly. I was born from countless mineral grains in space that clumped together thanks to gravity. Bishop Usher dated my arrival precisely at nightfall before Sunday, October 23rd, in the year 4004 before Christ. What a fool. And as if it were not enough that I was a chimera, Forged around the whizzing proto sun, more than two centuries later, Lord Kelvin allowed between 20 million and 400 million years since my beginning. Courtesy of the New Zealander Rutherford, and the discovery of radioactivity, more discerning men slowly came to fathom my ancient pedigree, carrying a particular amount of lead, of lead isotope. A wedge of meteorite found in a desert crater finally divulged my secret in 1953. I am more than 4.5 billion years old. When I was born, I was devilish, devilishly hot. Pretty soon, I melted completely. No water, no continents, just a molten sea, 3,600 searing degrees Fahrenheit, and the heavy iron it quickly sank to my core. At my edge... Space registered a biting minus 450. It didn't take long, therefore, for a thin crust to consolidate, disguising my internal inferno. Slowly things quieted as much as they could. And just as I was gaining my balance, that's when Thea, as large as Mars, slammed into me, unnoticed, unannounced, bringing about the great tearing away. At first I thought it was the end of me. The gravity came to the rescue, and once more that sidekick, angular momentum. Of Thea nothing remained, but you and I survived. And when I saw you for the first time circling me, I felt as if I had never lived before, as though I too had just been born, taking my first breaths. A cool sweat enveloped me. You were round and glowing, filling the entire firmament. Neither Neptune nor Venus had such a gift to gaze upon, and Mars could hardly score those two scrawny prunes, true moons, I was the sole terrestrial planet with a moon of my own, the largest of its kind in the sun's ambit. Years passed by me. The iron had long settled to give me my core, and above it the mantle, and above it once more the crust. But I was still a parched and rankled planet, devoid of oxygen, wallowing beneath a poisonous atmosphere. For eons, it remained a mystery how my wounds became comforted. Then a meteorite landed in 1998 and was, after a time, examined under the microscope. There they were beneath the ocular, tiny crystals of salt, and within them even smaller volumes of liquid, just as with Thea. This deliverance, too, had been a deus ex machina. The rock was more than 4.5 billion years old and could no longer keep its secret. All those years ago, incredibly, water had come to me from another world. I was still spinning at a wild rate then, my days just 10 hours long. Under bombardment by meteors, gradually my seas formed with the aid of water vapor from volcanic eruptions drop by drop, like assembled tears. Yes, my waters were brown and muddy at first, wafting piteously beneath a deep orange sky. The sun was then a dim brick red orb, squinting beyond my coat of toxic gases. But soon a curious thing happened. As the oceans grew, lapping against my forming continents, slowly they began to find a rhythm and I began to see that the rhythm was due to you. It was you, so close to me then, who governed the ebb and flow of my existence. Twice a day as you passed my equator, fifteen times closer to me than you are today, the oceans bulged, as if expanding to greet you. But when you rose and when you set, the waters shrank away, like a spider ducking into its carapace, so emotional at your comings and goings, "'that they needed to hide. "'Remember, when Thea hit me, uninvited, "'it tilted me on my axis. "'Suddenly one of my poles was closer to the sun "'and the other farther away. "'And so it happened that just as you were born, "'so too were my moods created, "'languid in summer, dark in winter, "'carefree in spring, pensive in autumn. "'I wonder sometimes,' Was it just coincidence? Once, like me, you too spun. But soon you were locked in place by the tidal rhythms, our grip on one another tightening, action at a distance. Always you showed me a bright face, never your dark side. Funny games you learned to play with me. When I come between you and the sun, you disappear entirely. And when it is the other way around, it is you who hides the sun. I know your tricks are illusions. The sun's diameter is 400 times larger than yours, but the sun is also 400 times more distant. That is why you seem as magisterial. Perhaps it is also why you have stayed closer to the sun's ecliptic, rather than mine, hedging your bets, instinctive about your true master. Still, in my heart of hearts, damn the physics. You loom large because you are my own. Exclusively. I cannot stop time. Due to my bulging tides, the ones expanding as if to greet you, you're moving away now at the pace of the growth of fingernails. You seem determined an inch and a half at a time to gain your independence. And as you move away yearly, I feel my center losing its balance, my internal axis inching imperceptibly towards chaos my spin slowing down. I comfort myself. As the bard has written, it is the very error of the moon. She comes more nearer earth than she want and makes men mad. And so perhaps it is for humanity's sake that you drift, not a child's rebellion. But then again, maybe it is your dark side, opaque to me. I am too young to know and too old to find out
0: it's beautiful and i don't even know if you can answer this question how did you come to think of the relationship between the earth and the moon in terms of mother and child
1: well because the science teaches us that the moon comes from the earth it's it's the moon was born from a chunk of the earth being taken away from it. So in a way, you know, just like a child comes from its mother, it's it's mother it's made of its mother, but it's also not its mother. So 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 too is the relationship with the moon. And then also I was struck by this um, understanding that due to the mechanics of the bulges of the tides, the, the moon is actually being bumped up in orbit and therefore very, very slowly, very imperceptibly, moving away from the earth. And so I immediately, that you know, that struck me like a relationship between um, a mother and a child or, you know, a parent and a child where, um, you know, the child slowly exercises um, its independence, moving away from the parent. Um, and just as we look at our children and we sort of, we pin all of our hopes in their future. Um, so us humans standing on earth, when we look at the moon, uh, we, we dare to, to dream. So it seemed to me like a natural kind of uh, metaphor to make.
0: Well, it's a beautiful one and, and very lyrical as all of the writing and evolutions is. Did, did you have any ambivalence about uh, inferring motivation and emotion uh into evolution
1: um you know uh i i did because you know i deal with evolutionary biology um and uh it's always a question you know how can we imbue things with agency uh other creatures um, that are non-human we know you know so little about our own mind, um, much less about the minds of other creatures, and so um, you know it's kind of scientific consensus not to imbue uh, non-human creatures with any agency, but rather to look at the results of their actions and not to speak about their motivations. Um, but um, and so in a sense, what what I do here is that. Th- these characters are almost characters. They, you know, they're on the cusp of agency, um, and um, I, 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 that that was something that struck me um, in a beautiful little book by uh, Italo Calvino called Cosmic Comics, um, in which he tells these kind of very beautiful tales about uh, about uh, the moon and about quarks and about uh, about heavenly bodies. Um, going about their business and and, uh, having relationships with us. Um, So, um, um, no, I mean, I I, I actually was interested in uh, in kind of infusing what we normally think of just in terms of inert or non-inert matter with a kind of agency that would make them alive to us um as you said this is a lyrical exercise and it's meant to
0: it's meant to really open up our minds and imaginations and it certainly does uh you once told an interviewer that you were an optimist and a fatalist <laughs> how how does that work uh well
1: uh i think that uh, i think that Optimism is, you know, famously a good tactic. You know, it's better to be optimistic than pessimistic, um, in in some sense, because um, if we have if we have some kind of belief that it, that we, in ways not understood to us, we help create our realities, then uh, thinking um, optimistically um uh, and brightly about uh, the possibilities of life will perhaps um, help shape those possibilities. Um, on the other hand, I sort of understand that there are uh, forces that are grander than us, um, so not entirely just a humanist in that sense, you know, uh, where you know all of all of uh, faith is, somehow understood to reside within, the, within, within our human grasp. I think that there are things that, you know, that history and, and astrophysics and geology teach us that uh, there are forces that are grander than us having to do with our planet and our universe um, uh, and with the laws of nat- nature and of matter. And so, um, uh, and so to that degree, I'm a fatalist. Uh, So, you know, uh, I'm not 100% sure that those make sense entirely together. Um, And probably, you know, a philosopher would quite easily take that conjunction apart. But um, uh, I'm glad to live with paradoxes. Uh, I think that they make life more interesting. Um,
0: With paradox and it sounds like with humility as well, that uh, we we are optimistic, we try, but the universe is beyond us, indeed. ultimately. Indeed, indeed. Now, uh, you host the Van Leer Jerusalem's uh, Institute's lecture series talking about science in the 21st century. Where would you like to see science go?
1: Well, um, I you know, I, I think that... I'd like to see the uh, continuation of the um, public engagement with science, um, which is something that is happening all around the world, uh, and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, we've come to understand the importance of human beings that, do, that are not scientists, that, that don't deal with science on a daily basis and may not be educated scientifically, the importance of them uh, um, um, engaging with, with, uh, with science and understanding its logic um, and, and the way that it produces knowledge. So um, everything and anything that has to do with, um, with strengthening the public engagement of science, uh, I, I very much believe in. But that also means, as you just mentioned, um, teaching a kind of humility, which is not always, um, you know, the provenance of all scientists and of the scientific enterprise. There's something, there's a, there's a hubris to science, which in, 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 in some sense is crucial because if we didn't have that hubris, then, you know, then we wouldn't reach for the stars. So hubris is natural and important and in fact healthy. But it's also healthy to um, to understand that it is a type of hubris to 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 underst- to, to, to contextualize it to, to know that we are engaging in a in a in a, in a in an act an amazing and wonderful act of hubris, uh, but that the solutions that we will find through our various inquiries. Uh, will allow us again to answer questions that the kinds of questions that have solutions and that there are many questions that do not have objective solutions cannot be touched by science. so uh, within the within the uh, the public understanding of science I think the component of the humility of the enterprise, the modesty um, understanding that uh, will be a, a very important thing, especially as we move into the future where, the lines between artificial and natural will become increasingly blurred, Um, where um, um, many, many other lines, you know, the lines between uh, environment and biology will be blurred increasingly. Um, uh, So in that kind of a future reality, I believe that... uh, exercising humility will be will be crucial. Um, you know, science science became big science around World War II. Uh, it, was, it was war and conflict that persuaded governments to invest massively in the creation of science infrastructures and technology infrastructures. Um, and science um, ultimately won the war. For one, one party, in that in that big conflagration, in that terrible conflict, but of course, science. Uh, so, science was born. Uh, modern science, to a large degree, from war and conflict. But it also has the ability to bring us together, to um, uh, to solve problems that will allow us to live together more peacefully. Um, and the more science invests in those kinds of Problems. Um, the greater, uh, the better off all of us will be. So, science is an, an incredibly important enterprise for, for humans. It's a, it's really a pinnacle of our development as a species. Um, so, um, you know, we should continue to invest and to believe in it, but at the same time also understand its very real lim- limits and
0: uh, um,
1: and, and, uh, and limitations.
0: Well, Oren, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Before you go, tell us what you're working on now. Well, now I'm working on a project
1: uh, which I'm really fascinated by, and that is the mystery of metamorphosis in nature. You know how a a frog uh, is created from a tadpole and how a, a monarch butterfly goes through Uh, life as a caterpillar and then creates a chrysalis and finally emerges as this lovely, uh, flitting creature. Um, It turns out that up to 70% of the species in nature undergo metamorphosis, and to some degree, we too undergo metamorphosis. When we're born, there are systemic changes um, to uh, newborns that happen at the moment of birth that are triggered by the same self genes that trigger metamorphosis in say, a cockroach. So, um, so we too undergo metamorphosis to some degree. And um, of course, it's a, it's a wonderful metaphor of change, of radical change, but it's also a, an incredibly deep mystery which is at the heart of biology. Um, and so I decided to try to write um, a history of this subject which uh, on the one hand is uh, focuses on the natural history of different types of metamorphosis across taxa and, and phyla in nature, you know, from marine invertebrates and starfish and hydras through, uh, uh, through insects uh, and up to uh, uh, vertebrates, including us, um, and and, there, and the amazing life cycles that are created within this, this system. Um, but then also to ask, you know, what problem was evolution trying to solve with this mechanism that we call metamorphosis? turns out that that's a very difficult question to to answer. Um, And so this book will be about the the men and women who tried to crack the mystery and it'll be about the life cycles of the organisms that undergo this mysterious and marvelous phenomenon of metamorphosis. And to a degree it will also have a, uh, autobiographical angle. Uh, my wife is pregnant right now. And, well,
0: congratulations. <laughs> <laughs>
1: thank you. And so that somehow is going to figure into the tale um, of, uh, of Metamorphosis.
0: Well, that sounds like a great project. And I look forward to reading it and hearing about it while it's in progress. Um, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. And thanks to Bela Pasikoff, our researcher as well. Thank you
1: so much, Renee, and thank you, Bela. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you today.